Um, for those of you who don't know, I'm Pastor Brad, and I'm standing in for him today, although um, my stature is quite a bit smaller. So focus your eyes down just a little bit, and we'll be all right. Would you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. This is a classic, classic passage of Scripture that, quite honestly, I think most of us are very familiar with. But I have to say to you for, uh, for myself that as I studied this week, the Lord really opened up some new insight for me that I would love to share with you. I know that, that um, we, we tend to work in these, um, these patterns and, dare I say, ruts of thinking often, and I desire today that the Lord would be at work in us to refresh our understanding of his word. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wow. How many can say amen to that? Yeah, that's awesome news. The therefore is there because Paul has been laying out in the previous chapters this legal defense of the grace of God. And he comes to this point and he says, now in light of all of that that we've talked about, you need to know that there is no, there is none, then nada, zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Please note that the word law here in this, this verse is a small letter L, law. If you look at verse 3, you'll see the same word law in verse 3, but it's a capital letter. And the reason for that is because here in verse 2, Paul is talking about... Um, I guess you could call it natural law. It's kind of like the law of gravity. The law, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's just how it is. The law of gravity is when things go up, they've got to come down. That's just the way it is. That's the way it works. That's the way God designed it. There's no questions asked with that. That the Spirit is, huh, it sets us free from the law of sin and death. Now, verse 3, for what the law, capital letter, could not do. Now, this, this word law here refers to the Old Testament law. We typically call it the, the Ten Commandments and all that goes with that. What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Now, what was, the, what was the law trying to do? What was it all about? What was the Old Testament law about? Well, it, 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 the whole intention of the law in the Old Testament was to make it possible for the people of God to approach God himself, to have a relationship with him. And God is righteous, altogether so. He is holy, undeniably um, pristine in his righteousness. And none of us are capable of coming before God apart from being made clean. 
And so the Old Testament law was, was uh, an attempt to, to say to us, here's a way for you to be able to approach God. Well, the, the problem is, is that it ended up failing because it depended a great deal upon us to follow through. And so what happens here is that Paul writes for what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, that's because it required us in our flesh to be able to fulfill, to do these tasks before the Lord. Because it failed, God accomplished what the law was designed to do. In other words, God himself provided righteousness for us. Sending his own son, continuing in verse 3, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. God did that. He accomplished what we could not by sending Jesus as an offering for all of us. Condemning sin, rendering it ineffective, inconsequential, irrelevant. Wow. Yes, indeed. That's what God has done. This morning I was reading um, a devotional book that, that I, I love very much and have read for years, Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. Some of you are familiar with it. And his entry for uh, this morning in, in, in today's vernacular basically said, don't, don't underestimate the fact that God paid a great price to deliver his righteousness to you. Some of us think that the, the grace of God is, is, well, it's free. Well, it is absolutely free, but it came at a very, very high cost. He goes so far, so far as to say, don't expect the love of God. Don't expect the love of God to cancel out your sin. No. Sin had to be paid for. And the love of God provided the sacrifice of his son to accomplish that on our behalf. That's pretty heady and heavy stuff. But bottom line, grace is not cheap. It costs a great deal in Christ Jesus. Let's go on. Verse 4. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, in order that the requirement of righteousness might be um, accomplished in us. For those who are according to the flesh, verse 5, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot, because the flesh is in complete opposition to the Spirit. It's kind of like oil and water. Can you mix oil and water? No, they are diametrically opposed in terms of their composition. So they repel one another, and that's precisely what we have here. The flesh cannot please God in any way. Walking in the flesh only leads to condemnation. It does not lead to life. 
Only walking in the Spirit will bring life. Now, he goes on in verse 9. However, you are not of the flesh. Isn't that good news? However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Wow. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. I know that there are people who are involved in the Christian community um, all their life, coming to church and doing many things in the name of Christ, and yet they still wonder whether or not they really belong to God. That kind of insecurity is something that God does not want us to deal with. Rather, He wants us to be absolutely certain that we belong to Him. The evidence that we belong to Him is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. Because Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would be given to those who receive Him as Lord. He said, I will ask the Father and He will give you another, a helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. That's the promise. That's the promise. But He says, if indeed. In other words, make certain that that is the case. And I, I need to say to you right now, today's the day to be certain. Right now is the moment to be absolutely certain that you belong to Christ. If you've struggled with that question, today's the day to make it certain. Let's bow our heads right now. Let's not waste any time with this. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to know for certain that we belong to you and that you provide for us the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives for those who have indeed given their lives completely to you. Right now, if there's anyone in this room, if there's anyone watching online, if there's anybody in the, in the overflow venue here, in the parents, if you're struggling with that question, now's the opportunity. Simply pray a prayer something like this. Lord Jesus, I thank you that your intention for me is to be certain of my salvation. So I pray that right now, you would give me that great gift. Even as I confess my sin and say there's no way I could pay for it. And I acknowledge, Jesus, that you gave your life in exchange for mine. And that I choose to call you Lord and Master of all. Lord, would you confirm this decision by pouring out your Spirit upon me? Help me know for certain that I'm yours. Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, 
I'd encourage you to, this morning to, to um, confirm that. By, by, um, at, at the end of the message, we're going to worship for a time, and I encourage you, just come up and share that. There'll be people waiting to, to pray with you. Come up and share that with them, and, and, and put a stamp on this, that today I became certain in my salvation with the Lord. Verse 10. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Christ is at home within you. The Holy Spirit resides within you because of righteousness. Christ's righteousness has been given to you and it is manifest in you. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who dwells in you. Through his spirit who lives in you, the giver of all life will resurrect, will bring to life not only your spirit, that part of you that communes with God, but also your body as well. We call that the resurrection. And the power of the resurrection is available to each one of us to walk in that power even now. What is that power? It's the power to make dead things come alive. To make those dead parts of our life come alive in Christ. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1 and, and, and plan to keep a finger here because we're going to come back here several times this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul writes, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Look at that again. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's the power of the resurrection, the power to make dead things come alive that God promises to us as believers. I know some of us feel like we, have, we battle with these things over and over that, that seem to drag us down. Sin that won't let go. Let me tell you right now that God provides for us this very power to take hold of that and render it useless. To render that thing completely irrelevant in our life. And that is the power of the resurrection. Back in Romans. We're skating pretty quick here. So then, brethren, verse 12, we are under we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. That's a, a reasonable conclusion, right? Because we've been set free. So our obligation is not to the flesh, but to live 
in a, uh, according or in the way of the Spirit. Verse 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, living according to the flesh is death. There's no two ways about it. That's just the way it is. But living by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, the activity of or the products of the flesh, what's the consequence of that? Life in capital letters with an exclamation mark before and after. That's the consequence of that. Verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. These are the children of God if you're led by the Spirit. Verse 15, for you've not received the spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Fear does not have a place in our lives as believers because Fear is a matter of slavery. And slavery is what is involved with the flesh. And if fear is present, you have to ask, are you attached to a spirit of slavery? That that is something that God releases us from. But if you've received the spirit of, but you have received the spirit of adoption, that spirit of belonging, that spirit of new identity in Christ so that you can cry, Abba, Father. If you've ever been to Israel, uh, you will hear little children crying, you know, yelling out, Abba, Abba. That means daddy. It's an affectionate term. It's something that, that speaks of an intimate relationship with their father. They belong in this family. And that's what we have as believers. Verse 16. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. What? Does it really say that? If children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him? Wait a minute. We've been been just, Paul's just been talking about this glorious freedom that we have in Christ, the beautiful experience of living in the Spirit, life to the max, if you will, and now he, what? He brings in suffering? That that doesn't fit, does it? He uses the words, if indeed, most certainly, if we suffer with him. And it appears, on the one hand, to be a condition, perhaps a prerequisite for being glorified. You must suffer in order to be glorified. On the other hand, it's simply a statement of fact. If indeed you suffer with me. You know, there are believers all around the world who do not enjoy the freedoms that we have here. 
We call it religious freedom, to worship the way we want. A number of years ago, Don Long, I don't know, I think you're here, there he is. Um, a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, Don challenged me to read a book by Nick Ripkin called The Insanity of God. Great title, huh? And it, it chronicles the life of Nick, who was a, a, uh, a, a missionary in Africa. And he saw um, the Christian, Christian community completely obliterated in Somalia. Completely. And he came home from the mission field um, really struggling, honestly. Lord, what is, what is this about? That people should suffer so for their faith. He determined in his mind that he was going to go find the answer to that by, by taking a world tour of sorts and visiting people throughout the earth who were believers and yet were in the midst of suffering. People like church in China, church in Russia, and many other locations. And you know what he discovered? People in those locations who are believers just assume that suffering is part of the package. If, you're, if you say yes to Christ, if you become a believer, you're going to suffer. That's, that's part of the package. Somehow here in the United States, where we enjoy such freedom, we've become infected with this virus that says, if I follow Jesus, everything is going to be hunky-dory, and my life is going to be awesome. And so much so that there are those who would teach from the pulpit that would say, if something bad is going on in your life, you need to be introspective because that means there's sin in your life and you've got to confess it in order for you to live this glorious experience called walking with Christ. And I have to tell you that that idea is indeed a virus. It's not something that belongs in our Christian community. Because it is, it's completely misdirected. Paul writes here, if indeed we suffer with him, because it's part of the package. It's part of what it means to call Jesus Lord. He himself said, if I've suffered, what do you expect? You will do the same when we follow him. The Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you are sharing in the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Verse 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. There's no... Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not in its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see, this is not just about humanity. This is about all of God's creation. Creation is enslaved to corrupt. How many of you were science majors? Anybody? Oh, wow. Yeah. I want to stand next to you. Yeah. Um, quite honestly, you're a minority in our population. The second law of thermodynamics is at work here in this scripture. What is that? It's the, the, the established law of nature that everything is degrading. Everything is decomposing. And it's irreversible. That's what Paul is talking about here. Even, even creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption. Set free into the freedom of the glory of the children of God to live unhindered in relationship with God. You see, at the fall, back in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam sinned, he took not only himself and Eve and their offspring, but all of creation into this place of paying the debt of sin. Or living in the consequence of sin. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pangs of childbirth together until now. Do you hear creation groaning? Pangs of childbirth speak of expectation. You know, there's a great deal of pain, but it's all in anticipation of this glorious revelation of this new life. That's what's going on, even in creation. The Apostle Peter and the Apostle John speak of the new heaven and new earth that will one day be revealed. That's a glorious promise that we have, even in creation. Verse 23, and not only this, but, those, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. In other words, the fulfillment of what God has already started in the Spirit, includes the redemption of our body. And we groan with expectation. How many of you deal with arthritis? Yeah. And we groan dealing with that. The reality is, is that one day, God is going to set us free, even from this stuff that we, we are saddled with in, the, in our body. Verse 24, and in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For those who hope, uh, for, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we 
wait eagerly for it. Hope speaks of that which we have not yet experienced and builds expectation. Oh, yeah? Okay, that makes sense. That's what hope's all about. Paul goes on, verse 26, and now we're really digging in. In the same way, in that same sense of expectation, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Yeah, in that same sense of expectation, the Holy Spirit in great anticipation, intercedes. Now, what does intercede mean? I often think that it, I, I've, I've struggled with this idea that Christ intercedes for us on our behalf. I, intercession, uh, typically, in my little, my little pea brain, means praying for, asking God for. That's what intercession is all about. So how does the Holy Spirit intercede for us? The word intercede here is similar to the one in the next verse, but it has a modifier in front of it. Hooper is the modifier, and tunkan is the, is the rest of the, of the word. Hooper means above or over, for the sake of, instead, or on the part of. So the Holy Spirit works on the part of or instead in the stead of for the sake of those he's praying for the rest of the word means to entreat or to deal with now look at verse 27 and he who searches the hearts knows the mind of the spirit because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of god now who is it that searches the heart it's god it's God in Christ Jesus, absolutely. Jesus knows us inside out. He knows your heart. He knows every single passage, the ones that are clear and the ones that are not. He knows the, the intentions, the emotions, the expectations of your heart. He also knows the mind of the Spirit. After all, the Holy Spirit and Jesus are like this. Scripture says they are one. And he intercedes. Here's that word again. The word here, entunkan, is, is, starts with this preposition, en. And the preposition denotes place or a fixed position. Tunkan means to make ready or to bring to pass. Jesus is interceding for us from a fixed position of authority so that he may bring to pass that which concerns us. That's a new look at the idea of intercession. At least it is for me. It's not Jesus pleading with the Father, would you please do this? Come on, Dad. They really could use it. No. Jesus, from a fixed position of authority, bringing to pass. Now, what is he bringing to pass? Look at it. What does it say? According to the will of God. 
according to the will of God. And the will of God in the New Testament is, uh, there are two Greek words used for the will of God. The first one we see here right now, thelema is the word in Greek, and it speaks of desire. More specifically, the heart's desire. It's primarily an emotional word. So the will of God is God's heart desire for us. It is secondarily volitional. In other words, it is secondarily um, something that is put into motion. It is primarily, first and foremost, God's heart desire for us. Look again at Ephesians chapter 1. This is a good, I think a very good rendering of the sense of this word. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. There's another big word in here in this verse that we're going to tackle in just a little bit. We're going to skate over it just right, right now. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Look at verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. That's the sense of God's will. It's his, it's his heart's desire, his kind intention. Now, the second word in the New Testament that is used for the will of God is boule. And it speaks of God's plan created by his counsel. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. This speaks about of, of laying out a plan. Laying out a plan that is, is put in place by God's counsel. Kind of like a blueprint. He lays it out and said, this is, this is the plan created by his counsel, not just by his mastermind, but his heart of love and good pleasure for his purpose. Holman writes, the impetus of God's eternal purpose and plan came from his heart's desire to have many sons and daughters made like his holy son. He predestined many people to participate in this, not by their own merit, but by virtue of being in the Son. Now, this big word, predestination. Predestination is the result of God's heart's desire, His will, not His manipulating of the circumstance. Look at verse 28. We know this Many of us know this by heart. We quote it a lot. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We know the Greek word there, oida, means to perceive, to realize, to understand. We know this. That God causes. It's interesting, this word cause is in the Greek a group of words. It means fellow worker, helper, to work with, to work together. 
Yes, it indeed links with the words just under or, or next to it. God causes all things, every single thing. All, that's what all means, right? God causes all things, all these matters of concern to work together. His cause is about working together. He helps it all work together for good, for your benefit, both ultimate, the long view, and even the longevity of the benefit, as well as the immediate in the short view, in the present moment. To those, to those, Wait a second. Don't we normally say, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God? Isn't that how we usually quote it? For those who love God instead of to those who love God? Think about that. Think about it. Two speaks of presentation. God presents this good to us. He presents it to us. To those who are called, those who are invited, those who are appointed even, according to His purpose, His purpose, His plan laid out before us, His proposal according to the original blueprint, and even this word even has the, the connotation of an offering that it's laid out before even us. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, verse 29, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. For whom? That, that word whom, I'm sorry if this is in the weeds for some of you, but it's all really important. The details matter here. For whom? Whom is just a generic pronoun. And quite honestly, that means any one of us. We all qualify. <laughs> This applies to every single one of us. This is not set apart for only a select few. It's set apart for all of us. For those he, for whom he foreknew, those who he, who he knew beforehand, he predestined. Now there's that big word again. To destine, to decree, to determine, appoint, or, I love this, to settle beforehand. My wife and I went to a dinner on Friday night to a, a little Greek restaurant near our home. And at the top of the receipt, guess what I found? Coupon for 50, no. Uh, <laughs> I, I found the word settled at the top of the receipt. In other words, the transaction was taken care of. It was reconciled. Have, have you ever been out to dinner with your 
uh, let's say your in-laws, and, um, and the bill never comes to the table, so you never get the opportunity to tip because someone settled the account even before the bill came to the table. Anybody have that experience ever? A few of us? Aren't we blessed? Yeah. Yeah. It was settled beforehand. The transaction was made beforehand. And that's the sense here of predestination. Now, predestination is, is related to the foreknowledge of God, the omniscience of God, but it is not the same. Some would like to say that because God knows everything and what's going to happen, therefore He, he predestines just because He knows what it's going to happen. No. That's, it's related to that, but that's not the sum total of it because foreknowledge does not include a sense of cause or determination. Predestination is linked to God's purpose. His plan laid out before us. His will. His heart's desire. His good pleasure. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. To become conformed. Become speaks of a process. And it speaks of continuing to be done. Continuing to be finished. Continuing to be fulfilled. Yes. To become conformed. That means fashioned or molded after a pattern. And what is the pattern? It's the image of His Son. The likeness of Jesus. That He might be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. That there would be many with His likeness. Folks, that's the purpose of God. That's the focus of His plan that He has laid out. That there would be many like us being conformed to the image of His Son. That we would all look like Jesus more and more and more. That's His plan. I think too many of us have, have looked at this text for too long and said, this means that God is all about fixing everything in my life for my benefit. So that it all works out for good for me. That's not what this text says. What this text says is God is at work in all of these details to bring about His purpose. And He's even, he's, he's even settled it all beforehand to bring about His purpose. And His purpose is the conformity of us all to the image of His Son. We're related to Him after all. He calls us His children. We are Jesus' spiritual siblings. I think some of you have His eyes. Some of you have His hands. Some of you have His laugh. Some of you cry like He does. And that's God's great purpose. 
Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also There's four verbs here. Every single one of them in the Greek are in the aorist tense. That means they are, the thought is that they are established once and for all. Those he predestined, he settled the transaction uh, for he already from the very beginning, he put his plan, his heart's desire in motion in that. He called, he invited, he appointed, he justified, he rendered just or innocent. We like to say, just as if I'd never sinned, what he's done for us, sign, seal, deliver, established in the past, long into the future. And he also glorified. Oh, wait a second. I mean, I, I like the way you look. But you don't look like you've been glorified to me. I'm just, just saying. Yeah, you know what? What's at work here is the fact that in the past, it's been established and it's signed, sealed, delivered, certain. Both present and indeed in the future. One day, one day we will experience that ultimate glorification along with and I have to tell you, that's something to be thankful for. Amen? I'd like to ask the worship team to come up. As they do, I'd like for us to dig into these last few verses. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who, who, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You know what? This word all here is the same word that's found in, in, in verse 28. All things work together. All things means all even the stuff that is not so big. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, same word, the same stuff, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced, would you stand for this? For I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we thank you so much. We thank you so very, very much for the fact that you've laid out your plan and it, is, it includes us. And Lord, we thank you as well that you are taking all of the details of our life, both the good and the bad and the, even the mediocre, and you work it all together for the sake of accomplishing your good pleasure. And that includes us. Thank you. Thank you. If there are those of you who wish to come forward, there will be somebody waiting to pray with you even now. But let's say thanks to the Lord and your will be done, Lord. Your will be done.